Welcome to Code Pink Radio, where each week we invite you to join Code Pink staff and guests as we discuss issues related to our mission to end U.S. wars and militarism. Code Pink supports peace and human rights initiatives and works to redirect our tax dollars into health care, education, green jobs, and other life-affirming programs. We endeavor to explore these issues and we hope to inspire our listeners to action. We are being broadcast on WPFW, Washington, D.C., WBAI, New York City, and we are carried by other Pacifica stations. So to borrow a line, welcome to our listeners from around the country and around the world. Your hosts today are Pocky Wheeland and Terry Matson, and our guest today is Gareth Porter. Gareth Porter is an American historian, many of you know, I hope, and uh, historian, investigative journalist, author, and policy analyst specializing in U.S. national security issues. He was active as an anti-war activist and has continued in that vein ever since. I'm very happy to have to welcome Gareth Porter today to join us for a conversation the uh, Code Pink today is involved in three major areas, major campaigns, uh, Latin America, the Middle East, and the military-industrial congressional complex, the, uh, the whole work of, of divestment from the war machine. And uh, so what we'd like to do, Gareth, is to begin with, uh, with that last one, the last of our campaigns, that military-industrial-congressional complex that you have quite a familiarity with. And, uh, and we're hoping that our, our listeners will get a lot from you because you've got so much to offer. So thank you for joining us this morning. Well, thank you so much, Pocky, for inviting me to this uh this uh, conversation. I, I'm looking forward to it very much because this topic of uh, the military industrial congressional complex is, uh, I hate to use the phrase, dear to my heart, because that strikes the wrong, somewhat the wrong note. But uh, it's, it's a subject that I'm extremely uh, very much involved in, um, have been for years, and uh, intend to um, have already begun working on a, a book that will reflect the thinking and research that I've been doing on this for years. Um, and, and I can tell you, and I, you know, your listeners will get sort of the first, uh, uh, the first uh, glimmer of uh, what, what this book is going to be about. Uh, I haven't talked about it publicly at all before this, but uh, I'd be glad to sort of share some of the, 
some of the ideas, some of the information that I have accumulated for the purpose of writing this book. And uh, uh, it's going to be a shocker. Uh, and, and I'm going to reveal that for the first time publicly that I am seriously considering uh, the title of the book being uh, National Security as a Racket. And of course, for those who've been involved in uh, anti-war work for many years, this will ring a bell. The term racket will ring a bell because it recalls uh, General Smedley Butler's um, uh, small book, um, War is a Racket. Uh, and uh, the intention was qu quite explicit to invoke that uh, for, for those who are aware of it, but, but even for those who are not, I think it's very important in my view, to understand that what we have been dealing with in this country for so many years, for going on seven decades now, is a system uh, uh, that has been evolving constantly. It hasn't remained the change, uh, remained the same. It's changed constantly. Uh, it's a system that, from the very beginning, was a racket. It was a racket in the sense that. Uh, it was selling a product that is national security, which was uh, essentially dishonest in its essence, because it was, based, it was based on a the beginning uh, on a lie. It was based on uh, the idea that the United States was under a threat from foreign adversaries. Uh, or a foreign adversary, as the case may be. And in fact, um, this was such a vast exaggeration from the beginning of the Cold War that uh, we have a fundamental problem here that never got better. It only got worse. Yeah. And Gareth, so that's the there's a question here. Oh, I just wonder, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but you mentioned, you know, from the beginning and what where do you define the beginning? The founding of the nation, or maybe perhaps the National Security Act of 1947, or where, when you say from the beginning, where are we? That's a very good question. And, and you know, to, to be as precise as I can, I mean, I'm going to begin with the, uh, the onset of the Cold War. Okay. The, the very first moves toward the Cold War, which would be 1946, 47. Okay. Um, and, and, you know, that's really when you begin to get a pattern of behavior here on the part of certain uh, senior officials in Washington. Taking so that advantage. was 1947 was the National Security Act, correct? It was, the, it was the National Security Act, but I'm not pinning this on that act specifically okay. so much as I am on the thinking of people in the uh, national security apparatus at that point, the people okay, who were great. involved with the military industrial complex or what would become the military-industrial complex. Right. So, so it's a very good question, and that's one thing that I will address very explicitly for sure. So uh, anyway, that, that's the fundamental premise of this book, that, that, that essentially national security as a concept practiced by the U.S., quote, national security elite, unquote, has been alive from the beginning. It was based on a, a set of fictions uh, that um, that that there were there was a lot of conscious lying. There's also a lot of of lies that were not so conscious or simply unconscious along the way. No question about it. But I will document in my book 
not just one or two or three or four, but a dozen or more cases during the Cold War itself in which you can show unquestionably that there was conscious deception being practiced in order to sell the idea that we need to do more on national defense uh, or, or to, to dial back any effort or to prevent any effort to dial back on national defense uh, or the military budget. Uh, these are all cases that are very well documented and are not well known. Some of them are, are known to uh, historians, others are not even well known to historians. So that's the starting point. Um, and and uh, I think that uh, this is the precisely the right moment historically for, I, I think, for reasons which will be obvious to your listeners, uh, to raise this issue in a fundamental way and to challenge this system in a way that has not been challenged before. Because the coronavirus pandemic has created an unprecedented socio-economic political crisis in the United States, which is uh, surrounded, I would say, by the, the reality that uh, Americans now have been confronted with the fact that, that their national security was not being threatened by some foreign adversary or some imagined threat from abroad that that bears the name of a country or a movement. No, it was threatened by uh, a, a pandemic that uh, was, was completely outside the concept of national security as practiced by the national security state of this country. And, so, and this is the fundamental- Could we say that domestic, um, domestic weakness or domestic Fragility is the actual national security threat? Well, I, I think, uh, to be more precise, I would say that it is the uh, inequity of this, uh, of this country's socioeconomic and political arrangements, which have been revealed by this pandemic in such dramatic terms, that is the underlying factor here that um, uh, really threatens uh, Americans in the most serious way that they've ever been threatened. And that fact needs to be the basis for a new movement. And I wish I could sit here this morning and suggest how we organize that movement. Unfortunately, I do not know how to do it, but that is the challenge of this era, I believe. I think, Gareth, we're going to get, we're going to move on to that later in this program because I think there, there are the seeds already sown. And, uh, and we have, uh, I think, let me just throw out the Poor People's Campaign as, as a vehicle whereby a lot of this is, uh, is umbrellaed. But please continue because I think it's, it's terribly important. I love Terry's question about where, where do you, where do you start the clock? Yes, yes. Well, I mean, we're talking about a, a period during which this, uh, this national security state uh, or military industrial comp uh, congressional complex began to, to get its feet on the ground uh, in the late 1940s, in the second half of the 1940s. Um, with the dawn of the idea that maybe Russia is the enemy and we should arm, rearm ourselves 
uh, to prepare for a confrontation with Russia, with Soviet Union, excuse me, <laughs> I have to readjust my, uh, right. yeah. my terminology um, for, the, for the specific historical era that I'm talking about. But uh, during that period, you have a couple of things going on, and, and I will talk about them in my book. One is virtually unknown, uh, except for a few historians who have specialized in uh, military history during this period. Uh, it is virtually unknown that the, um, particularly the U.S. Navy, after World War II, which found itself in control of um, a vast empire, if you will, of, of uh, ships and, and military bases in East Asia. Uh, of course, with the conquest of, of Japan, all of the bases uh, of Japan, as well as those that the United States has used to, uh, to, to reach Japan, ultimately, um, were, were available to the United States. But, but then you had the Chinese Civil War arising in the, from 1945 to 1950. And during that Chinese Civil War, you had a situation where there was a, a very important alignment here between the U.S. Navy and the Chiang Kai-shek government. That's the old term, but I think many of your listeners will be more familiar with the, the, the name Chiang Kai-shek than the new, the new Chinese uh, name that, that has been given him for historical name. Um, and, and this was based on the fact that Chiang Kai-shek gave the U.S. Navy the use of a military base on the Chinese coast in Jingdao. And, and this was so highly prized by the U.S. Navy that they did not want to give it up. And so when the Chinese Civil War was drawing to a close and the, uh, the Navy was ordered to withdraw from Jingdao, they refused initially to withdraw. They didn't want to withdraw. They wanted to defend it uh, because the Chinese communists were going to take over and they wanted to resist the Chinese communist regime and start a war with it over that base at Jingdao. And that was the beginning of a long history of the U.S. Navy leading the U.S. military in threatening war against the Chinese Communist government, the People's Republic of China. And that went on well into the 1950s, into the 1960s, uh, until the Kennedy administration, they were still threatening war against China as we were threatening to get into uh, wars in Laos and Vietnam, in South Vietnam. Um, ultimately, that era passed, but, but it was a very long period where the U.S. military, the Navy and the Air Force in particular, were very eager to go to war against China. And they advocated it within the, the councils of the national security state of the Eisenhower administration and the Kennedy administration. And if they'd had their way, we would have gone to war with China. So that's a chapter of the history of, of the Cold War that is not well known, but really needs to be understood because the U.S. military, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, played a role of advocating war against China. But it was not only against China, it was also against Russia. Yeah. During the, the Eisenhower administration, particularly early, the Joint Chiefs of Staff we're advocating the threat of war, of first strike against against Russia. 
against the Soviet Union. You know, again, Derek, it's important, I think, to, to note, you were, you were noting earlier that, uh, that after the war, after the Second World War, the United States went after Russia, after the Soviet Union. Yes. Uh, but I, because I think they had all that they had already had that plan in in their minds in pl in place. Once the the Nazis, once the Germans, once that war is over, we'll really go after the real enemy. And of course, it's it's two-headed, both China and Russia and the Soviet Union. So right. and when, once the United States had a, an array of atomic bombs. Not that many, but when they had a number of atomic bombs uh, and the Soviet Union either had none or, you know, was still working, you know, still developing their, their atomic weapon. Um, naturally, as one would expect, the U.S. military wanted to exploit that for, uh, to dominate the, the Soviet Union. Um, and, and that was exactly what was going on during that period. They were advocating that. But it came to a head during the Eisenhower administration early on when the Joint Chiefs of Staff were, uh, were, were advocating uh, a, an ultimatum to the Soviet Union. If they did not agree to our terms for essentially surrendering Eastern Europe, uh, giving up communist domination in Eastern Europe, that we would essentially declare war on them. Um, and the Eisenhower administration would not go along with that, but there's no doubt that it moved the policy of the Eisenhower administration much farther along towards a very aggressive uh, pursuit of advantage over the Soviet Union during the Cold War for the next six or seven years. Uh, so, so this is another aspect of, of this history that, that indicates just how far military influence over the fundamental policy of the United States in the Cold War had developed. And this was what President John F. Kennedy inherited. And, and another point that I want to make before we come back to the fundamental sort of uh, uh, equation here uh, that, that I'm going to talk about in the book is that John F. Kennedy's administration was uniquely um, subject to pressure from this set of military leaders uh, on a whole series of issues, Cuba, Southeast Asia, China, and the Soviet Union. And in all of those issues, including whether the Air Force would get all of the uh, ICBMs that they demanded, there was a degree of, of pressure on Kennedy and Robert S. McNamara, his Secretary of Defense, that was much greater than anything either before or since. And it was partially because Kennedy refused to go along with the uh, plan that the military and the CIA had hoped for on the Bay of Pigs, which was U.S. using its own airplanes to bomb, uh, which they never forgave him for, the CIA and the military, the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And he refused to intervene in Laos in 1962, as uh, 61, 62, as the military and the CIA wanted him to, and the State Department, and McGeorge Bundy. The whole cast of characters were united on these issues. And so when it came to um, the, the, the Air Force's demand 
for thousands of ICBMs, uh, the, the uh, Kennedy administration basically buckled under pressure from the Air Force and gave them, at the beginning, twice as many as Secretary of Defense McNamara believed was justified. And he, he told uh, the people who worked for him that if he didn't do that, he was afraid he'd be murdered by Congress. That was the least he could do without getting murdered, is the way he put it. So, so we're up against a situation, they were up against a situation where there was this, this political pressure from the Air Force and from the Joint Chiefs of Staff generally that colored everything that the Kennedy administration did. And to me, this is emblematic of a, of a much broader problem that has lasted ever since then, which is that the military and their allies in Congress have a very strong uh, hand that they can play to put pressure on every president and every secretary of defense to do uh, much more than, you know, in, in an objective sense they believe is necessary. And, and so all of this plays into the bigger equation here of, uh, of just how this system actually works to the disadvantage of the American people. And let me just make one more point and then we'll stop and discuss. Sure. I want to make sure you get this on the table. The fundamental problem that I think needs to be debated by the American people is whether this system is, uh, has provided anything that could be worth the cost and risk to the American people over the entire several decades of the existence of this system. And I mean by that to include the, the in innumerable instances in which there was a threat of nuclear war, uh, particularly in the Cuban Missile Crisis. We now know from, uh, from Dan Ellsberg's memoirs and from other sources that, that there was a, the closest call we ever had to a nuclear war. There should have been nuclear war, except for the accident that a uh, Soviet officer was on board one of the submarines that was forced to the surface during that crisis um, when the, the submarine was not in touch with Moscow. And their rules were that if, if the two main officers on the ship agreed to use nuclear weapons, they would be fired. And both the regular officers on board agreed that they should fire their nuclear weapons because they thought they were under attack. But there was a third officer in that case who said, no, we should, we should wait. And that's why we didn't have nuclear war in 1962. Uh, and, and that's just one case of many, many cases that we now know about. Plus all of the, uh, of the cases where there should have been an accidental nuclear uh, detonation in the United States because of the casual way that nuclear weapons were handled for decades, still are handled for, de for decades. Um, so, so these are the risks that have been undertaken, have been, uh, have been forced on the American people by this system without their knowing it, without their agreeing to it. And they are still there. They are still there. And this should be weighed in the balance and, and as part of the debate that we need to have. So I'll stop there and we can talk about this. Sure. Did you have some? You know, I just, before we go 
before we go to break, there's, boy, there's so many things you've mentioned that I would like us to follow up on in the next, next segment of our show. But um, for me, and I guess for, for all of us on the program today, there was definitively a certain amount of propaganda that we were um, exposed to as young children in the 50s and 60s growing up that really helped. Uh, or it was an attempt to formulate how, how we all were supposed to look at the U.S., and you touched on a lot of that earlier. For me, on a very personal level, um, Kennedy was the first president to really uh, exemplify to me that this, this security state that you're talking about is the entity that sets U.S. foreign policy and not the White House. Um, and so that, to me, really has affected you know, how we vote or whether we, whether our vote at all really matters, because whoever sits in the White House, as you've said earlier, is really in, uh, influenced by this security state and Congress as well. There's a really good film I saw a number of years ago, and you may have seen it yourself. I don't know who produced it, but it's called JFK, A President Betrayed. And it- uh -huh. I was in that film. I, I was in the film. I know it very well. Oh, okay. I'm so sorry. I didn't. Yeah. No, that's okay. I'm listening to you talk, and I'm like, wow, you know, this is so much like this film out, you know, with Kennedy yes. specific, with his administration specifically. Yeah, it was really, um, it's very poignant. Absolutely. That You're right. That was a very, uh, very well done uh, uh, documentary and, um, uh, and, and does very forcefully, I think, make the point that you're, you're now re recalling uh, that, that Kennedy uh, uh, did, in fact, have to stand up against pressures from uh, those in his administration who were much more, uh, who were committed to war, basically, um, or, or risking war in a way that he found very objectionable. And that, that he was betrayed by many people within his own administration. And, and I, I was part of the, uh, the documentary because I had discovered that on uh, the, the whole Vietnam issue, uh, historians had always said that JFK had opposed negotiations with North Vietnam. And in fact, I discovered that he had ordered his State Department uh, to open to, to explore with the government of India, opening a negotiating channel with North Vietnam, because he realized that he was going to probably need to have a channel because we weren't going to win that war. We were going to have to negotiate. And he was planning ahead. And, and what happened was Averill Harriman, who was his top policymaker on East Asia in the State Department, undermined his policy deliberately by refusing to carry out that order. With a little help I, from Lodge. Pardon? With a little help from Lodge. Uh, well, that came a little bit later. Lodge came a little bit later, but no, it, it, was, it, it was really his own initiative uh, to, to basically sabotage what, what Kennedy was trying to do. And, and, uh, but we know that Kennedy was planning. He, he knew he could not openly come out saying, I am going to withdraw from South Vietnam. He could not be reelected. And he said that openly to people around him. But he intended to do so in his next administration. Well, it might have been too late <laughs> by that time. But anyway, uh, that was the problem that he faced. And, and it fits into this overall scheme, as you've said. 
You want us? Why don't we take a break now for a moment, and we'll uh, we'll be back with uh, Gareth Porter, our our wonderful reporter and uh, and analyst. This was such a such a wonderful time with you. So we'll be right back. WBAI New York, you're listening to Code Pink Radio, the joint collaboration between WBAI in New York and WPFW in Washington, D.C. We're in a membership and fundraising drive room. want you to help us succeed, reach our goals. Give us a call now at 516-620-3602. Become a BAI buddy, a sustaining member. Get those WBAI face masks. For thirty-five dollars, five one six six two zero three six zero two. Welcome back to Code Pink Radio. Uh, our guest today is Gareth Porter, and uh, and if you've just tuned in, you uh, you've missed a, a lot, but keep uh, pay, pay attention because he's got a lot to say. That um, you know, we we sometimes forget that uh, that we have a history in this country. And uh, and one of the things that that Gareth reminds us of is that uh, it was it was uh, Dwight Eisenhower who said to beware the military-industrial complex. And we we know that the actual uh, uh, speech said the military-industrial congressional complex. And someone decided to delete that. <laughs> but uh, without the the congressional piece of that, we wouldn't have the apparatus we have. So, um, so Gareth, welcome back, and um, take it away. Let's continue this conversation. Well, well, thanks, Paki. I, one one thought that I had, in fact, uh, that that I didn't add to to uh, what what we were talking about before, is is that I'm glad you've raised this question of who actually controls the levers of policy toward uh, the military, the use of military force particularly going to war is of course the final the final stage of of military policy uh the most serious question of military policy and there is in this country i'm a, i'm sorry to say a fundamental bias in the understanding of this problem which is that yes of course the president of the united states always decides everything having to do with the use of force and war well that's the myth that is propounded, of course, and has been defended over the decades, not just by people in the White House 
and in, in, in positions of power in the United States, but by historians themselves. And, and I'm here to tell you that having written uh, a history of, of the uh, U.S. policy toward Iran, uh, toward Vietnam, I almost said Iran, uh, toward Vietnam, uh, both under Eisenhower and Kennedy and Johnson, uh, that, that what I found was that historians had been uh, far too ready to accept the idea that uh, it was the, the presidents themselves who had made the fundamental decisions about going to war or not going to war. When in fact, the, the reality of the situation throughout this history under Eisenhower, as well as under, particularly under uh, Kennedy and Johnson, was that they were under terrific pressure from their entire national security apparatus, apparatus apparat, if you will, uh-huh. to, to go to war in Vietnam. Uh, in, in the Kennedy administration during 1961, 62, well, 61 particularly, uh, the entire apparatus, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Secretary of Defense, Robert S. McNamara, the, the National Security Advisor, McGeorge Bundy, the State Department under Dean Rusk, um, all were converging on him, insisting that he had to send U.S. troops to South Vietnam. Can I interrupt for a moment? Yeah, sure. So while you're talking about this pressure that the president was receiving at that time, in the film we talked about in the first segment of our program, JFK, a president betrayed, there is a scene, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's in that film, where the then Senator Kennedy was in Southeast Asia. I want to say 1953, when he specifically saw that the battle in Vietnam was a civil war and not um, the, the expansionism that, that the U.S. was framing it to be. Am I- you are absolutely correct. You're absolutely correct. Um, in, in fact, uh, both uh, John F. Kennedy and his brother Bobby Kennedy were in Vietnam, in French Indochina at that point, still you know, under French uh, control. Uh, it was 1952 when they visited. And they both came to realize during that trip that the French could not win, that the Viet Minh could not be defeated, that it was a national struggle, struggle for national independence. And there was no way that that, uh, that movement for national independence could be defeated by the French using military force. And they never forgot that. And in fact, you're, you're absolutely right to bring that up in the context of what I'm now specifically talking about, which was the decision that JFK made in uh, November of 1961, when his entire body of advisors, national security, quote unquote, advisors, were telling him, Mr. President, you must send American troops to South Vietnam to, to demonstrate American determination to resist the Viet Cong pressure uh, on the the Xiem regime. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, and John F. Kennedy uh, told them that he did not believe, and this is well documented uh, in the official papers of the United States uh, published by the State Department, that he did not believe South Vietnam was worth the lives of American GIs. 
um, and that it was not like Berlin. He was still defending the U.S. position of resisting pressure over Berlin. He was saying that, that South Vietnam was not comparable to Berlin as a, as a Cold War issue. Uh, it is simply not something that we should fight for. And, and by the way, uh, Lyndon Johnson took the same position uh, when he was president. He said the same thing informally, privately. But, but what his advisors wanted him to do was to send those troops anyway. And, and he agreed to send them as advisors, but he knew in his heart that they were going to be involved in combat. Uh, the people flying those airplanes were flying combat missions. They were not just advisors. Um, and uh, so, so it was the beginning of the escalation, and he knew that that was what was going to happen, and he, he regretted it very soon after that. But the point is that um, he uh, did not believe that the United States should go to war, and he, he made a compromise with his national security state that cost him very dearly, and he realized it later. And it was, of course, it was the beginning of this escalatory process. And uh, after Kennedy, it was Johnson who inherited the same problem and who inherited the same pressures. And I document in my book um, on, on the subject uh, called uh, uh, Perils of Dominance, the Imbalance of Power and the Road to War in Vietnam, the way in which Lyndon Johnson was subjected to a series of more than a dozen initiatives from all of his national security advisors to do something that would take a step toward a war against North Vietnam. What they wanted was for him to begin the bombing of North Vietnam in 1964. And he resisted over and over and over again. And even after he was reelected in November 1964, he continued to resist to the point where McGeorge Bundy and his brother uh, uh, his his brother, uh, who was Secretary of uh, uh, Under Secretary of, of State for uh, East Asia, uh, were were convinced that Lyndon Johnson was ready to lose South Vietnam, and ultimately, McGeorge Bundy and Robert S. McNamara wrote a letter to Lyndon Johnson saying, "Mr. President, we believe that this policy that you're following this was in February 1965." The policy you are following is unacceptable. We cannot support you. Meaning that they were warning him, if we lose South Vietnam, which they expected to happen, we will not be able to support you. We'll have to tell the press and Congress that it's your fault. They didn't use those words, but that was very clear in the letter. And it was after that that Lyndon Johnson changed sides and started the bombing. So, uh, so this is an illustration, a very dramatic illustration of the point that I'm making, that the theory that the president decides things is highly flawed. The reality, the political reality is that the media, Congress uh, are, are in line with the, the interests and the views of the military leadership and the rest of the national security state, and they will use their power to put pressure on the president by by making him believe, him or her, to believe that the president will suffer the, uh, the accusation of having lost a major interest to the enemy because that president did not do what he needed to do.
And that's the fundamental problem that I think we've faced over and over again in this country. Uh, it, it is important to understand that, that this uh, entity, the military industrial congressional complex, has evolved over time and it has increasingly become privatized, uh, particularly since the end of the Cold War. You've had a very far-reaching process of privatization of the Pentagon as well as the intelligence community. And what that has meant is that more and more contractor personnel are taking over functions that were once uh, taken by civil servants, people who worked for the U.S. government, who were on the public payroll. And, and again, that the significance of that is that those people are making decisions um, which are, you know, affecting the overall direction of U.S. policy uh, in, in a broad sense. And they are making those decisions on behalf of the contractors rather than on behalf of the United States, the American people. And, and therefore, this is an entity that has become increasingly removed from the interests of the American people over the last three decades. And, and this is a reality that, um, that needs to be brought out as part of a movement, no question about it. This, this entity, the national security state, and the Pentagon in particular, has become more and more like a business. It has been run more and more like a business with the thought in mind of obviously increasing income and the income is divided between the bureaucrats and their bureaucratic entities and their contractor allies. And the contractors get nearly half of the military budget every year, hmm. nearly half, 50%. And, and of that, about a third goes to the top uh, five or 10 contractors. So we're, we're talking about a high concentration of benefit that goes to a very, very few people within this overall system. And, and that, um, that becomes particularly uh, onerous for the American people when you have choices. For example, I mean, Afghanistan is a perfect example of this, where uh, a war that should have ended 10 years ago or 15 years ago, uh, the United States should have come home, has gone on, has taken a life of its own. Why? In large part because the vested interest of both the bureaucrats and the, the contractors is to keep this thing going because it keeps lots of contracts going that would be finished if the war ended. And, and so this is a perfect, and, and drones are a, a, a wonderful example of how, you know, this, this phenomenon uh, is, is so costly in terms of not just dollars, but in terms of policy, because it means that the drone wars, not just in Afghanistan, but elsewhere in the greater Middle East, are going to continue as long as the contractors and their friends in Congress can keep them going. You know, can I um, just interrupt here for a moment because you're mentioning private, the privatization of warfare, basically, you know, the, the, the manufacturing of weapons and the, and the physical execution of warfare um, by private contractors, by private industry, private businesses. And here at Code Pink, we have a, we have a campaign called Divest from War because so many people in the U.S. do not 
even realize that they may perhaps be investors holding shares of stock in, a num in any number of defense contractors or, you know, um, even private um, military personnel. And so that's something that, you know, we work on here is to educate our, our followers about how they may, without even any understanding, be participating in this privatization of war. And so it's really important that you're bringing this, to, you know, into the conversation. Okay, could, could I make uh, a suggestion which is going to go somewhat against the grain of, of what you're suggesting, what, what you've done, which is, which is great, great work. I mean, no, no question about it. Let me come back to this historical moment, this COVID-19 historical moment, which, is, which changes everything in this country, changes everything. It can never go back to the status quo. And if we begin to normal, as everyone keeps saying, <laughs> if we begin with that understanding, then it seems to me that it, it should become clear that the way forward in dealing with this uh, national security lie, this this uh, this system that has been such a uh, uh, has been such a farce for for so many decades, is not to try to cut, just to cut military spending by, certain, by a certain amount. It, it is to, to put forward the concept that we must end the power of the national security state and the military-industrial congressional complex that it has held over our lives for so many decades. And it must be reduced to the level of a normal state that the Pentagon and the CIA and the NSA must be reduced to the level of a normal state. And that means thinking through what, what are the measures, what, what are the indicators of a normal state versus a hegemonic state that tries to dominate the entire globe militarily, which has been so costly and so risky to Americans for so many, for so many years. I think that's the issue that we must put forward forcefully and, and organize around. And, and let me make one more suggestion for you to consider and, and comment on. Uh, you know, we, we have seen the rise of populism in this country and in Europe for the last 20 or 30 years. This is a fundamental phenomenon which needs to be understood and needs to be integrated into a strategy for dealing with this phenomenon. And that, uh, I think, means to, to think about what are the major elites that populism has, has risen up to oppose. And, and the two major elites in this country, certainly, that are obvious targets power over policy in the in the two uh, two functions the two areas of finance finance financial policy and healthcare policy that they control extremely firmly those levers of power to the point where they have their way and and both parties obey what they want 
completely. That's why the Republicans and the Democrats are completely both discredited uh, for a very large part of the American public. And I think the best strategy here would be, if it's possible, and, I'm, and I don't know that's possible, but if it's possible, to link up the struggle against the military-industrial con congressional complex, that military-industrial elite should take its place with the financial elite and the healthcare elite as the third elite that needs to be unseated from power, that needs to be taken down. Um, and, and so you need a movement that combines the public uh, anger, the, the public uh, uh, dis, disaffection with those three elites. I don't know if it's possible, but I think that's the formula that, that needs to be thought through. And I'd be glad to have any suggestions, any, any thoughts you have about that. I mean, just for my own, my own purpose. All right, Terry's going to start. Know, I have something. Uh, well, I'm just going to ask it <laughs> because it's made, I've been thinking about this for a number of years, but I didn't vote for the current occupant of the White House. But listening to you talk about these three economic healthcare, uh, finance, and uh, military. Our current president doesn't come from any of those three um, economic sectors. He comes from international real estate, principally, right. Right. which I guess could be tied to finance. But he's really coming from a different economic niche than those three you've mentioned. And so I wonder if we could comment on that. And then the other thing is that, yes, this, this heinous military industrial complex that's been created by the United States has, has not helped U.S. population domestically, and it has caused more heinous harm to people all over the planet that we often don't even talk about those numbers of people harmed, killed, injured, and so, um, but I think with this COVID-19, we're actually seeing how fragile we are domestically as well. So I'll just throw those two comments out there for you. Well, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right that, that Trump, uh, Trump represents uh, a degree of independence from those elites that is unusual. I mean, I guess you could say that no other candidate who's come up in recent times uh, could could make that make that claim, um, and, and certainly, you know, Democratic candidates of recent vintage could not make that claim. Um, and and so, you know, the problem with Trump is is not so much his connections with these elites as it is his personality, which is extremely problematic to say the least. Um, and, and but 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 his his freedom from uh, those those elites certainly the 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 healthcare and financial elites has been an advantage politically. There's no doubt about that. It has allowed him to, to play the, the, uh, the, the card of, of appealing to this populist sentiment in the country. Um, whereas democratic candidates have simply not had that freedom, it seems. And, and I, I think way of understanding the dynamics of recent uh, political, political years. Um, and and it and it is it is helpful to think in those terms as you 
try to come up with a strategy for the for the future in terms of dealing with um, a new campaign to bring down the national security state uh, to 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 cut it down to size, if you will. Maybe maybe that's a right one way to think about a slogan. That is an, an excellent thing you, that you've really led us to, is that how to bring it down to size so that it is what uh, our president or others have talked about, a, a normal country. Uh, yeah. Eric yeah. Porter, you are full of so much information, and uh, and we have to leave. We have to end the, the program. But uh, but you're, you're writing the book. We'll have you back again. And uh, and thank you for, for your inspiration. And listeners... Um, that's the, the, the invitation we've all been offered. Uh, how do we break, bring down this, this state and, uh, and help it become a normal state and, uh, and end this regime? So thank you, Gareth Porter. Thank you. It was a terrific conversation. I really enjoyed you joining us this morning. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. I enjoyed the opportunity and, and appreciate the opportunity that you've given me to get some ideas out there. Good. Stay well. Bye. Bye-bye.